Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today is Ken Tate, the Russell Rostici Endowed Rangeland Watershed Science Specialist in Cooperative Extension at the University of California at Davis. Uh, Ken, Washington State receives enough Californians that we have a bit of a jaundiced view of them, but I won't hold that against you. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tip. I'm happy to be here. Ken and I met a few years ago working together on a small outreach grant to promote grazing practices that maintain riparian function and water quality. Uh, He came to Washington and taught to a couple of packed houses of both regulators and ranchers. So I'm, I'm aware of Ken's ability to communicate well, to bridge science and application with all kinds of people. Uh, in, I would say that in water quality, public lands management, private lands grazing, and uh, some other disciplinary spheres, we have really similar issues aqu- across the West, but especially in geographic regions where ranchers use irrigated pasture, mountain range, forested range, uh, rangeland with lots of annual grass, a lot of similar issues. And an endowed rangeland watershed scientist position is fairly unique. Uh, Ken, what is the history of that position? Who was Russell Rustici? Sure. So Russell Rustici was a really interesting guy. He was a self-made man. He um, um, made his money um, actually as a produce broker um, back in the 50s and 60s. But his lifelong dream had always his lifelong dream had always been to be actively managing a ranch. And so, um, starting about the late '60s, he purchased and operated a ranch in Lake County. Um, Russ was really active with the California Cattlemen's Association, with UC Cooperative Extension. He was just inherently a very proactive fellow, and so he he was largely involved with a lot of our programs and kind of surprised a lot of us when. Um, as he got along in, in years and started to decide what to do with his estate, he established a series of rangeland-related endowments um, within California. He endowed three um, endowed chairs, one of which I hold. Um, there's another one at UC Davis, and there's another one at UC Berkeley. And basically, those endowed chairs allow whichever faculty member is fortunate enough to hold it, it gives us annual resources Um to do things that need to be done um, within rangeland research and education that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Um, Russ additionally established a competitive research um, call or funding uh, system. Where annually, we fund about three to $400,000 worth of research on rangeland issues and livestock cattle production issues in California as a result wow. of its endowments. Am I right that Lynn Hunsinger is the other position over at Berkeley? That's correct. So Professor Lynn Hunsinger uh, holds the endowed rangeland management position at Berkeley. And my colleague, Dr. Randy Dahlgren, who is a biogeochemist, he studies basically nutrient flows and nutrient water quality issues um, across California. He holds the other endowment here at Davis. How did you end up in this field uh, studying rangelands and watersheds. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I, you know, I, I grew up in the rangelands of, of central Oklahoma and I've always had an affinity for, you know, the rangeland ecosystems. I've always had an affinity for the rural communities that depend upon, you know, at home it was cattle production, wheat production, and um, oil and gas. And so that was, a, those are mainstays and still are in supporting those rural economies. And so it it, as I decided I wanted to go into science and be a scientist, I, I wanted to have my research be helpful um, to communities, to families um, in agriculture working on rangelands. And so that's kind of the path I got on to, to get here. The watershed side of it, I've you know, just always had a huge interest in how water flows through our environments. And as I got into getting a better understanding of the issues facing livestock producers in, in particular, 
water quality was clearly something that was coming on the horizon. So it, it just kind of naturally gravitated that way. What sort of research problems or outreach efforts are you guys working on right now? We, uh, we've got a, quite a few going on. Um, my program in particular, I was hired at UC Davis, you know, 20 some years ago, specifically to work on water resource issues at the interface of rangeland livestock production. And um, those issues, while we've made big strides in addressing them and adding science to solve those issues, continues to be a major concern within California. Um, so I do a lot of work on rangeland livestock production systems and microbial water quality, things like E. coli, Cryptosporidium parvum. Um, we are doing a, quite a bit of work still on riparian grazing um, issues. So trying to identify and extend more information about what we call sustainable riparian grazing. Um, and then, in, you know, with the drought we've had here in California, which hopefully we're certainly coming out of, but there's clear signals that, you know, reduced precipitation is in our long-term future. We've spent a, quite a lot of time in the last several years working on drought sustainability for working rangelands. Mm-hmm. You've talked a bit around it, but uh, what is uniquely interesting about the job to you? I've said before, uh, I think on the podcast, that I'm intrigued by rangeland-based livestock production and motivated to to do uh, to do the job 120% because I think that food and fiber production systems that rely on naturally occurring plant communities that are managed with few uh, what I would call crop inputs is a good idea. In other words, I think it's important for human flourishing generally uh, that it respects natural ecosystems and looks to build on them instead of take them apart. Uh, what what gets you up in the morning besides supporting your family? Yeah, so I, I share your you know I share your beliefs and values about you know the sustainable use of rangelands. I I. There's a couple of things. First and foremost, as a as a cooperative extension specialist working for a land grant university, that's a dream job for me. Um, I I want to be able to conduct research on issues that people are interested in right now and need help in solving. And I I like this job. I, I love this job in that. I'm able to work directly in a participatory setting with the end users of the research that I'm working on. And so to be able to, you know, know that the things that I'm doing are going to have impact right now and that I'm a part of solving problems on the landscape that I, I that I love and the communities that I love um, is what I think keeps me going. I think that in terms of sustaining rangeland ecosystems, which are a landscape that, you know, I, I, I love as well. I, I just, you know, I, there's nothing makes me happier than being out on rangelands. And, um, I think particularly in California, given the pressures for development of these lands into higher value crops, such as tree crops, nut crops, um, vineyards, rural residential, there's a lot of pressures on a lot of our really unique rangeland ecosystems in California to be trans transitioned into, you know, the final crop, something that we cannot come back from. And I don't see any way to safeguard and conserve these landscapes without profitable, um, intact ranching communities embedded upon them and within them, because otherwise there's no, no way to sustain these systems. They're going to be converted. To some other economic use, and so maintaining sustainable, long-term, profitable enterprises on this landscape, in my mind, is is essential, and it keeps me going. You know, keeps getting me up in the morning to work with these people and make that happen. Yeah, I would agree. We've we've titled this episode "Challenges in Public Lands Grazing," and uh, I will be visiting with Lynn Hunsinger in a uh, an upcoming episode. And kind of focus on the paper that she and Mark Brunson did, making the case that uh, large-scale or, or extensive grazing done well may be the the conservation solution for the New West. Uh, make 
make a link for us between healthy ranch businesses, healthy communities, and healthy rangelands and watersheds. Yeah, I see them as completely interdependent. Um, you know, you we all know with training in, in rangeland management that this is a sustainable, renewable resource. And our management decisions, if they're not proper and site-specific, can lead to long-term you know, threshold degradation of the system, which will cause productivity and, and potential profitability on that landscape to plummet. And so there's there's an absolute connectivity between the um, wise management of rangelands via grazing management and other techniques on ranches and the long-term profitability of that ranch. Um, we can't take a short-term view towards profit. We've got to take a long-term multi-generational view towards the sustainability of a family-based livestock industry. And we have to take the same view for the sustainable management of the resource that we're dependent upon. So those are mutually beneficial. Um, in terms of watershed function um, and water quality, I find that the same practices that we employ for just wise livestock management for, say, drought resilience and other benefits from a business perspective, um, moderate stocking rates, rotation, those types of things, um, are the same practices that lead to healthy soil conditions, good vegetative cover, um, great filtration capacity in the landscape, and subsequent clean water. Yeah, you guys have done a lot of work in California on water quality and watershed characteristics that promote water quality. Uh, I remember seeing a job announcement, oh, probably 15 years ago for a range watershed management position that was within the city yeah. of Los Angeles. They were going to be hiring someone to manage one of their primary watersheds that provided municipal drinking water for the city. Uh, and this person would be working with landowners uh, and public agencies to maintain plant communities and implement practices that would minimize soil erosion, you know, minimize wildfire. Um, to what extent are those kinds of concerns on ranchers' minds in California or anywhere else in the West for that matter. It seems that California is certainly on the front end of that kind of thinking um, by necessity, which I think is one of the more useful trends to come out of California. <laughs> yeah, so sure. Any thoughts so, on that? You know, um, in California, you know, we are indeed, you know, kind of at the, at the, I would, forefront's not the right word, but we're right there on the front of the bubble, if you will of issues that relate to any kind of agricultural production and water resources and other environmental concerns. Um, and so, you know, 80% of the surface waters that we use in the state of California for municipal drinking water, for um, uh, irrigation of freshly consumed crops such as spinach and other leafy greens comes off of rangelands. You know, not everybody realizes it, but we, you know, beef cattle production is the fifth largest commodity in our state, in the state that has a lot of big agricultural commodities. So beef cattle production is a big part of California's economy. Um, roughly 50% of our state is some type of grazed rangeland ecosystem. And so we have a great opportunity. We have substantial overlap between you know, the activity of livestock production and the lands that generate um, drinking water, irrigation water that, you know, 40 million people rely on. And so, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of, we have a lot of concern. We've, we've had con consistent concerns, um, about the potential for rangeland beef cattle and sheep production to be a source of microwave pollutants, um, fecal borne microwave pollutants, such as E. coli, as an example. And, you know, that's been a, a consistent concern. It's something that continues. Um, we see in the state as our population continues to grow that irrigation districts that might have developed a hundred years ago to develop water to irrigate crops, such as citrus crops in the South Valley or uh, fresh produce crops in the Salinas Valley, as many of those crop acres are replaced with um, urban dwelling in urban communities, um, those irrigation districts have transitioned to start delivering um, drinking water, municipal water, as, 
where they're no longer delivering agricultural water due to land use conversion. And so we see a growing number of you know districts that might have not been concerned about drinking water quality, maybe rather more concerned about quantity of water, um, getting into the into the process and into the game of better understanding how their watersheds above their reservoir are being managed relative to microbial pollutants. So it, it continues to be an issue uh, within the state, and I don't see a change in that anytime soon. Yeah, it seems like this direct connection between grazing management, vegetation management, and public goods like clean water is something that represents uh, for landowners, and I'm thinking particularly of ranchers, is an opportunity to do good and you know market that idea. Uh, is that the case, or is it more of a regulatory hammer that somebody should fear if improper grazing causes soil erosion and sure. poor water you know, quality? I, I do a lot of ranch visits. You know, somebody's got a concern, or somebody's raised a concern about a ranch, whether it's the individual rancher or not, or on a you know on a public land allotment or a you know, a lease on a, you know, an irrigation land allotment or something. And so, you know, you'll go out and if, if I see somebody who's got a serious grazing issue, you know, their stocking rate's too high, their timing is wrong and, and they've got, you know, substantial bare soil. They've got issues with, you know, sustained productivity. I always say first and foremost, you know, water quality at that point is the least of their concerns. They've got an unsustainable production system. You know, so livestock performance, um, those types of things are going to be suffering. There's clear on-ranch economic incentives to clean up, if you will, poor grazing management practices. And you can demonstrate the benefit of that in terms of increased productivity, pounds per acre of forage, productivity of livestock. So, you know, right. when you get into those scenarios, we, you hear a lot that, you know, there's, there's really substantial degradation occurring on rangelands. I don't see substantial degradation occurring in, in today's age just because it economically makes no sense to a wise manager. Um, there, there is a place in the middle there where you can have livestock production and rangeland conditions seeming to be quite well, uh, certainly moderate to fair. And, you know, that might be from an economic perspective in the near term uh, sustainable, but you can be seeing some, some water quality issues associated with that. Um, and in those situations, you know, we have substantial practices at hand for people to adopt. In terms of how ranchers are thinking about issues such as water quality, um, you know, these regulatory mechanisms that are out there, they have raised awareness um, without a doubt. And I think, you know, it's important to force awareness on some issues. Um, what, I, what I've seen in California is... Awareness has been, was, was brought back in the late 90s, um, and water quality became a big issue for producers within the state. Um, what we saw happen was a true partnership and leadership exhibited by proactive folks within the livestock community, proactive leadership within core, core agencies, such as our water boards and others. Um, and we were fortunate in that within the state of California, there came together a, um, a coalition of folks to take a leadership role in how we address um, water quality issues related to grazing. Does that mean that every rancher in California is joyfully going out and addressing water quality issues on the ranch? Absolutely not. You know, people deal with that problem where they have a clear need. Um, perhaps they're in a watershed or a water body that's been listed as impaired and the local Regional Water Quality Control Board is, you know, engaging them. Then um, folks will will engage and become proactive at that point because there's been a history of that. I think within within the community in, in the state um, to say that it's been without bumps to say that we haven't had some strong conflicts between the ranching community, the universities, and the agencies involved in this and other organizations. We've had a lot of bumps, um, but if you look at where we are. In terms of the ranching community complying in partnership with water resources regulations within California, we're way ahead of other types of land uses um, that are in a much more um, 
I'd say structured regulatory framework than we are um, due to the fact that they haven't been as proactive in addressing this issue. Yeah, there is. I mentioned in our uh, most recent episode with Jack Southworth, who's a rancher in Central Oregon, a Baxter Black quote that I recalled hearing. I don't even know where I heard it, but he said, there's nothing that comes out of the end of a balling gun or a hypodermic needle that can compensate for subpar animal husbandry. And I think that the same principle works with land as well. Economically beneficial ranch practices are good for the land because there's this close tie between what's ecologically beneficial and economically beneficial to the ranch. There's just not enough money in the world to, you know, to, to compensate for tearing things apart. And I would say that in general, perennial grass-dominated plant communities don't lose much soil or shouldn't. Uh, and of course, hydrologic function, uh, the ability of the soil-plant interface to capture, store, and safely release incoming water, you know, is is inversely related to erosion potential within some range of variation. Under just to drill into that a bit, under what circumstances do grazed watersheds lose soil and maybe maybe we could contrast here annual grasslands which are um, somewhat unique there in california with perennial grasslands and uh, what i would call treed rangeland yeah sure so you know we uh so here in california of course a lot of our key a lot of our key drinking water reservoirs are you know, the primary watersheds feeding them are an annual grassland in the lower elevations, um, oak woodland with annual grassland understory at a mid-level elevations, then in conifer forest up in the higher elevations, generally on, on national forest lands. And what we what we see in California is on our annual rangelands, we see really high levels of soil cover um, with our annual grasses. Um, and so we've we've recently actually just published a, a paper with Toby O'Gene, who's a specialist in soil science um, led an effort to, based on the soil conditions across California, empirical research that we've done on uh, residual dry matter, uh, basically soil cover levels at different levels of, of standing crop um, on annual rangelands that we, we are seeing very low, um, below background or at background levels of soil erosion off of our um, annual grasslands, um, so sheet and rill erosion that might occur due to um, bare soil and things like that. We're not really seeing, even at you know fairly heavy stocking rates, our annual rangelands still maintain enough, enough cover. Um, and given the types of rainfall events that we hear here in California, which are more frontal and gentle in nature, um, we don't see a lot of erosion off of annual grasslands. Um, the erosion that we do see um, on on ranching operations, to be honest with you, primarily much like on forested systems, if you look at the literature and civiculture practices and erosion, it's from road networks. So you know, rural roads, um, ranch roads, um, forest roads that you know just aren't designed up to spec, that you know do not shed water correctly, um, that slough are are primary source of erosion on rangelands. Now those roads that exist on, on ranches, you know, they are part of the livestock production system. And so they are part of the, part of the operation. Um, but we, as I say, often I, I'll get in a pickup and drive around a ranch looking for erosion caused by grazing. And we get back to the headquarters and, and tell the manager, well, you know, the primary source of erosion that, that I saw by and large on this ranch was the roads that we were driving around on. And so we, we've focused a lot of attention on that aspect. Um, relative to the, your question about annual grasslands and perennial grasslands, you know, perennial grasslands are, are quite diverse. You know, I, I read a lot of the literature from, you know, Nevada and, and Utah and places like that. And they, they talk about, you know, they're, some of those perennial grasslands, they can only achieve maybe 50 or 60% soil cover. And inherently there's bare ground between some of those areas. Um, so some of that site potential, some of those perennial grasslands, you know, with the types of modal rainfall that they get, have substantial potential to yield um, sediment, but that's part of likely part of their inherent background sediment load. Um, 
So it kind of depends upon soil cover and what that particular site's able to um, to generate, whether it be perennial or annual. I was recalling when you said that some concepts from coursework and uh, riparian ecology from 20 years ago uh, that was distinguishing between pulse disturbances and press disturbances. I don't even know that I've heard that language since then, but what what stood out to me is that, you know, say a, an aquatic ecosystem like a stream can withstand fairly well a short-term uh, increase in in sediment load, for example, where you've got a, you know, a two or three day pulse of sediment in response to a precipitation event or a, a, a grazing event or whatever. Uh, that and that has a very different effect than than a, a press disturbance, which would be something like a road that was located immediately adjacent to a stream, and the road is a constant source of sediment input, and that that press disturbance, that constant input of sediment, fundamentally changes the nature of the stream. Uh, it doesn't just present uh, you know a, a single short term challenge that can be dealt with by a healthy um, riparian ecosystem, it represents a, a long-term change that that really changes the entire nature of the stream. Yeah, that's right. You know, you, you think about that, you, just like a plant community on a, on a rangeland upland site, a riparian area and, and the stream channel that is there has evolved to the levels of sediment and flow that are received. And anything you do that alters the load of sediment, um, whether it increases it or decreases it, or alters the flood regime, runoff regime, uh, such as a road or a culvert, um, can you know basically upset the dynamic, the balance, dynamic balance that that systems come into, and it will it will seek a new level, right? It'll it'll mm-hmm. be in perturbation until it is able to find some level of equilibrium, and so that's a you know, the, that series of events, both changes in sediment as well as flow dynamics into streams has become a, is a substantial issue that we face across the West and I think across all systems. Yeah, I think that's a good transition. If, if ranch practices that are both ecologically and economically beneficial result in whole functioning ecosystems... Uh, that should be producing some of these less tangible uh, ecosystem goods and services, which are some of the things that society values on uh, really both public lands and private lands. And I think one of the sleeper issues over the last hundred years is the extent to which well-managed private lands provide those to the public. Um, But I've thought for some time now that the future of public lands grazing is with ranchers who can demonstrate their ability to graze toward these less tangible uh, goods and services. What are, uh, if, if you weren't prompted by the, the title of the episode, what are the main threats or obstacles to continued sustainable ranching, assumed, assuming that we're concerning ourselves with preserving ranches and ranch families and that, that's, that what they're doing is good for the land? Sure. Uh, what are the primary barriers? Well, I'll, I'll speak to just research and information that we have in California, but I, I, you know, as you know, the things that we're facing with here are the the same as you're facing across the West. And, you know, we did a, we recently did a, in the last several years, we did various social surveys, mail surveys, and follow-up interviews with over 500 ranchers across California. And we found, you know, if you think about, so what is a ranch these days? How's it made up? And what does a ranch depend upon in terms of land resources? Uh, we found in California that over 50%, about 50% of our ranchers are dependent upon access to some type of public land lease, whether it be federal public lands or state or regional type lands that are, that are managed in the public, for the public trust by agencies. And so there's substantial reliance, um, among the ranchers within the state of California on access to public lands to, to basically provide the round the, you know, annual clock, the year long forage that they need. As you know, we've got a six month to seven month summer dry period here in California. Our lower elevational range, which we call winter range, um, provides forage from 
October till April or May. During that summer dry period, you know, for the last 150 years, our uh, ranching community has been dependent upon access to higher elevation summer range, generally managed by U.S. Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management. Um, we're very dependent on upon about 800 acres, 800,000 acres of irrigated pasture. So dependence upon that irrigated pasture and the availability of water. And so when we, when we talk to ranchers about, you know, the issues that they face in, in being sustainable and, and what they need to be sustainable, one of the key terms that we hear back from them is flexibility. They need flexibility. They need to be able to have access to um, these different types of lands to be able to make the entire year clock. And so thinking about access to public lands and ranchers' dependence upon public lands is essential. What is the capacity of individual ranchers to maintain their access to those public lands? And my experience, the, the folks that have public lands leases who seem to have the least number of issues, if you know what I mean, it just I don't get phone calls from them on a regular basis. They are able to do businesses. They understand that that access to that public lands is via contract. It's via an agreement. And in modern times, accessing federal public lands, you're making agreements in your annual operating plan and operating instructions to um, manage those rangelands for the multiple uses that have been established for them. And so ranchers who are actively working to distribute livestock well to make sure that clearly identified critical areas are you know receiving the level of use that's been agreed upon uh, ranchers that are taking the time to understand what the grazing riparian grazing standards are um, you know in terms of level of use that can be met annually on riparian areas site specifically within their ranch. Folks that understand those things and are proactively managing to meet those agreements, um, generally are not having a lot of problems on their public lands uh, in terms of you know, complying with the, the policies and the, the regulations that exist there. And I think it's important for folks who are doing that to document those things, um, taking photographs, keeping some records, so that they're able to demonstrate that their management is proactive and beneficial. And I think that's a key step in being able to maintain that sustainable access to that, to those lands and those forage resources. Yeah. Regulations exist in principle to limit behavior that harms others or harms resources that other people depend on. And some regulations seem reasonable and, and some don't. Uh, it's, some people have said that yeah. the current regulatory burden is a result of the legacy effects of historical overgrazing. Uh, depending on how you see that, you know, we could probably argue that the period of time during which true overgrazing occurred probably wasn't all that long. Uh, but that may have had some pretty uh, significant punctuated changes in, in the landscape that uh, in places we're still dealing with. To what extent do you think the current regulatory structure or regulatory burden is um, a result of past mismanagement, and to what extent is it just that's just the way societies change over time? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to say. You know, so uh, give you a, one of the things, and we talked about this these surveys that we did with ranchers. One of the things we asked them, kind of the last question in the survey, was it was kind of free form. They could write into the response to this question whatever they wanted, and we asked them. So basically, you know, what do you see as the greatest threat? the sustainability of your ranching business, you know, and your, your family operation, um, without a doubt, um, regulation, um, terms like regulation, government oversight, you know, those were by and large, you know, the primary, um, topics that came up, um, regulatory oversight and issues like related to water and water security and availability. And a lot of those concerns about water security and availability went right back to um, um, regulatory issues. And so the ranching community definitely sees regulatory pressures as a primary um, threat 
to the sustainability of their operations. I've seen similar results from almost surveys of other agricultural commodities here in California. I, I saw a, re, a, a paper where they surveyed organic um, tomato producers in the Central Valley of California. They got the exact same result. So this, I think, is prevailing across you know agricultural communities as we work through this interface between regulation and food production. Um, you know, on the flip side of that, we we've got you know 10 billion people to feed in about 30 years, right? So we've got to find some solution to this. And as I as I look at you know the idea of so you know regulations currently and just the broader you know prevalent concern that might be out there about livestock grazing practices and impacts on water quality and environmental health. I, I, one of the things I've, I've done, I, I went back and I, I was thinking, why is there so much discrepancy, you know, in some of the research literature on grazing management and environmental outcomes? And I talked to other colleagues in other disciplines and they're like, you know, Ken, it doesn't make any sense. Usually science as a whole body moves forward and converges on some some truth and some agreed upon knowledge. Um, but you guys seem to keep, you know, we keep seeing, you know, literature that goes head to head in, say, re- appeals on uh, public land allotment. So I, I thought, yeah, why is this? So I went back and I looked. And if you look at, as an example, if I go in and I look at an appeal on the grazing plan on an allotment, somebody basically appealed something or took it to court, a decision in modern on a modern grazing allotment. If you look at a lot of the literature that they're referencing, you know, reviews of grazing impacts on, say, like green areas, you go back and you look and you're like, wow, all those papers are, those are review papers um, published in the 1990s, you know, 94, 99. And you go back and you look at the papers that are in those literature reviews that, that comprise it, and they're all from the 80s and 70s and the early 90s. And then you look now at some of the more recent reviews that find that livestock grazing practices exist, which allow us to graze riparian areas in a way that's compatible with, you know, healthy riparian um, function. And so if you look at a review of research that was completed in, say, 2015, and the papers that it's based upon that occurred in 2010, 2005, etc., you realize you know there's actually kind of a disconnect. If you if you think about the grazing management that was occurring, you know, at the in the early 1900s, even into the 1950s and 60s, the research that's in those literature reviews conducted and published in the mid 1990s are probably absolutely valid. But if you look at what's been happening on grazing practices and management on public lands in particular, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been a sea change in policy and on-the-ground management. As an example, in California on on Forest Service lands, we have 30% fewer animal unit months on Forest Service allotments in California today than we had 20 years ago. Substantial reductions. And so... Um, we have different riparian grazing standards um, to protect riparian areas. And so one of the disconnects that exists, I think, and continues to perpetuate this concern is that if you go off and read a a review paper from that long ago and don't realize that there's been a change in on-the-ground management in the conditions out there that current studies reflect, um, I think that's part of the issue and the way the scientific literature is being used. And I think that drives some of the concerns um, in terms of just the current regulatory environment. You know, we need regulations because, you know, I can tell my class, I have a class I teach in rangeland management ecology. You know, if if we didn't know that the California Highway Patrol was out there enforcing the speed limit, we'd all drive 15 to 20 miles over it. Um, that's just human nature. But when we know that that person's going to be sitting out there and they're going to enforce the law, all of us are pretty law-abiding. We will we will get on board and we will drive at a safe speed. Um, and I think that's kind of the role regulations play. Um, I think that there has to be some balance 
in the application of those standards and those regulations. And I think in enforcing those regulations, we have to understand that some ranches, in order to comply with those regulations, it might be a 20-year time frame. You know, if, if substantial capital improvements are required or changes in management are required that require some time to get in place, um, I think we need to see the regulatory community, and I think we do see them in many cases, giving folks credit for the actions of beginning the compliance process and getting on the road to get down to the right place. Um, I think understanding that we can't get there overnight where we do have a problem, but understanding and rewarding the efforts of individuals on the ground to move in that direction is, is essential. Yeah. Yeah. Just to play the devil's advocate on the, on the speed limit analogy. Yeah. I, I think the downside of that is that the, the natural world is pretty complicated yeah. and uh, more complicated than rocket science. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's, it's not always obvious. It's very difficult to write regulations where it's obvious at what point you're exceeding the speed limit oh, and what exactly is a speed limit. Yeah. I, 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 I concur with that. I, one of the issues that we have is so, so there needs to be, you know, we need to have regulations in place that help us, um, you know, recognize some boundaries. One of the problems that we have is substantial conflict and overlap in um, regulatory agencies. And that's an issue for just, you know, myself doing, being a professional, trying to keep up with what are the regulatory programs and mechanisms that are coming out of state government, coming out of federal agencies. I've got, I've got at least four state agencies that have oversight on water-related issues in California. Um, they don't communicate very well among themselves. I've got at least four federal agencies who have some oversight on water-related issues on rangelands. And so trying to distill down to ranching community which practices, planning processes, et cetera, that they can do would um, satisfy all of those constituents at the same time. And then the, the other side of that is, you know, we I talk a lot about the ranching community being a clientele. The agencies are also a clientele for the scientific community. Um, you know, I have a lot of questions from various agency staff who've been tasked with the job of working on water quality impairments in a, say, a rangeland watershed. And some of them will say, you know, I have no training in this. I have no idea what beef cattle production looks like. I don't know what their constraints are. Um, and so you've got people within the regulatory agencies tasked with a job that they have no training to do. And so, you know, that's a real challenge. Um, oftentimes there are people that are able to recognize that and look for assistance. And sometimes they look for assistance and there's nobody there to, to assist them. Other times you have situations where a regulatory process with an agency will move forward um, in a bubble and they'll come out the other end with a um, program for compliance that isn't based on the best available science and isn't practical. Just can't be implemented on the ground, you know, economically or just logistically. And so absolutely that, you know, um, that is an issue. I actually had an opportunity to visit with some state legislators um, a couple months ago. These are people, you know, in state legislators who are setting policy. And it was interesting to talk to them and listen to them. And they'll say things like, you know, we set this policy. We put it in place as a state law um, because it seemed like a really good idea. And it was clear evidence of clear need. And then we were mortified to see how it was actually administered and turned into a regulatory program um, by agencies. And so I think, you know, policies and how they're implemented by agencies, how they're handled and collaboratively by the multiple agencies that might have oversight for them is a real challenge. I think not just to the livestock industry, it's a challenge to the wise, you know, protection and conservation of our resources. Right. Meanwhile, you've got 97% of ranchers in your survey that say they tried to conserve natural resources. Yep. Uh, and there's probably some good evidence of that. I, 
in a yeah. previous episode with Floyd Reed, we were talking about the book that he he had uh, put out a few years back where they compared landscape photographs in West Central Colorado from explorers mm-hmm. that came through in the late 1800s and they retook those photographs and uh, you know find the number of landscape changes probably the most consistent one is an increase in the number of trees yeah you know but in general you don't see things getting worse over that time no. frame in most places and I can't tell you how many ranchers have told me you know, you should have seen what this looked like 20 years ago. And they always mean that it looks better now than it did 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on kind of an arbitrary landscape quality scale, if somebody has gotten a piece of ground from a, a three to a six over the last 10 years, that should get some some credit. You know, but if a, if a brand new range con who got hired a year ago sees that on, on their arbitrary scale – it's a five yeah. and they think it should be a nine and they're getting pressure to get it there. Uh, they may feel like the rancher should be doing something different. Yeah. I thought and it that- was really interesting in your survey that ranchers were divided uh, just exactly evenly over whether government is helping in the world of conservation or hurting or neutral. Yeah, that, that's that's a good observation, and I, I think that um, you know, continuity is important. You know, my perspective is that I I see rangeland health across our state, certainly in the time period I've been here, as improving. Um, and you know, if we look at our research on water quality and water quality conditions across rangelands, we're we're forty or fifty research papers in now, and we don't really find problems. We find our rangelands to be sinks for nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon. Uh, we find very little erosion to be occurring broadly across the landscape. Um, we find very low microbial water quality um, pollutant levels in our extensively grazed rangelands. And, you know, that's a substantial body of work that consistently shows that outcome. So I think the ranching community is correct to um, have concern because generally the way we start a, you know, say, okay, okay, well, we're concerned about E. coli in, let's say, say spinach in central in Salinas Valley. The, the first, you know, outcome of that is, well, what about livestock? They must be a source because we heard in the news about hamburger and E. coli, so cattle must be a source. And I'm like, well, that's, that's completely different issue that's at slaughter that's a completely different system yet you know we initially we always start it seems like we always start with the assumption that something's wrong that there is a problem on this landscape and i think that 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 is a, a poor way to come at what might be a problem it's a poor way to come at a community of individuals you know none of us like to have somebody walk into you know walk into our house and say well i really don't like the color of your walls i really don't like how high or low, you've hung your pictures. I think you should have done this. You should have done that. You know, I'll show them the door if they come and talk like that. And I think for the ranching community, you know, they're justified to, um, to say, you know, wait a minute. You haven't demonstrated that I'm and my management's part of the problem here. And so, you know, one of the things that I always do, if I'm invited onto a ranch to, you know, take a look around and see what I, what I, what might be going on, I never show up with the idea that there's something wrong. I show up with the assumption that everything's fine until I see proof otherwise. And I think that's a, that's a real um, issue in the way we address, whether it be livestock production or any other type of resource use. Um, and that I think you'll see that when you've got, in particular, a lack of continuity in staff and others working on an issue um, so that they cannot see what the long-term condition, conditions have been or they don't have an understanding of the efforts that are ongoing by that management community to, to ensure there are not problems where they exist. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, a number of people, I'm thinking specifically of Nathan Sayre and Lynn Hunsinger, have made the case that most of the problems with ranching are social and not biophysical. And the philosophies that we bring, the beliefs and values that we bring to our thinking about it make a big difference. You know, one of them yeah. is whether people are innocent until 
until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that ranchers are objecting to when they when they say regulations are a burden. The regulation seems to assume that they are a problem, that their way of life is a problem, and that the government exists to uh, to rein them in. Yeah, absolutely right. I, you know, I tell my class all the time. You know, we we certainly on rangelands have some serious biophysical problems and challenges. There's no doubt about it. There's some plant invasions and some thresholds, ecological thresholds that have been crossed. That putting all social issues aside, we'll have a hard time fixing. But you know, these are interconnected social, economic, ecological systems. And the vast majority of the challenges that are see are people recognizing that they share values, that they share a, a love for the landscape and the resource, that these multiple uses truly are compatible. And I think if wherever we see people get on that page and where individuals realize that the other side, the other side, right, whatever that is, they, if they're really not out to get me, they're really not out to put me out of business. Um, you know, if we start to sit around the table or get out on the ground, um, you know, that is the path, the sustainable path to solving the problem. And we talk about regulation a bit. You know, regulations can come and go. You know, we see one administration strengthening a regulation. We see a Another regulation, trying to weaken the regulation on an agency, you know, that's those are four-year terms, five-year, eight-year terms. That's not the path. You know, that's not the path to getting a community and a resource to a stable, sustainable um, place. And, you know, when you think about, just think about, you know, the ranching community, and we interviewed 100 ranchers, sat around their kitchen table with them and interviewed them one by one. And... You could, one of the things I began to recognize after about 30 interviews, and I, I knew this, but it really kind of hit home again, is um, you can't make people afraid. You can't make people, just regular folks, concerned that they're not about their livelihood, that they're not going to be able to support their family. You kind of started out with that, of what gets me up outside of supporting my family. Well, first and foremost, supporting my family, right? And so if you come at a, a community or an individual and they perceive what you're trying to do is a threat to their capacity to support their family and maintain, you know, a, a, a multi-generational uh, heritage, they're going to fight. Um, and I think we cannot put people in that position. That's just not a, no matter what, that's not a good way to go about solving a problem. No, how, no matter how bad it might be. Yeah. And I would add to that, that, where we do have even large biophysical problems, the solutions are going to have to be socially derived because the real world is much more complicated than rocket science. And and passive restoration often doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. I thought it was interesting in your survey that uh, 63% of ranchers identified the ranching lifestyle as more important than eco- economic returns. Uh, do they have the luxury to say that because people by and large are not losing money or is the lifestyle draw that strong? I, I think this is important because we need food producers and open space and ranching is one of the only places where we get those two things together. Yeah. I, you know, and you'll hear this from Lynn Huntsinger as you talk to her and others, you know, that People are in, I'd say, in ranching in, in particular, in agriculture in general, because they love that lifestyle. You know, it, it has um, heritage value to them. They love that connectivity to the land. Um, I often hear people talk about, we produce food, we feed people, and we're proud of that. And so there's absolutely a strong draw um, to that. You know, if you look at that survey as well, you'll see that at about the same number, about 67% of respondents also have substantial off-ranch income. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people, their ranching business, their agricultural business is a component. It's, a, it's an enterprise that they maintain, um, potentially even subsidize with other activities. Um, a lot of our, our ranching folks who raise livestock on rangelands, 
also are, are per, uh, active in crop agriculture. They have other aspects of agriculture. Um, they have jobs in um, rural real estate and a suite of things that allow them to kind of make it work, which to me tells me, you know, as an extension educator was, was telling, these are really busy people. They've got multiple jobs going on within the family to make this all tie together. And so, you know, thinking about their concerns about time, regulation, um, their ability just to attend, say, an old-fashioned cooperative extension education event, um, you know, they've, they've got to be really careful with their time. And, you know, for us in education, we've got to be efficient in getting information to them in a way that they can access. And I think from a regulatory compliance perspective, whatever compliance vehicle we come up with, planning process or whatever, whatever we put out there as a, in a collaborative fashion, it's got to be fairly straightforward and achievable. We've really got to cut the red tape, I think, in order to get more activity on the ground and less activity on the laptop or in a meeting room, you know, in terms of compliance. Um, because we've got folks that are committed to the business, committed to the lifestyle, but have a lot going on. Yeah, I think there's something there. I've, regarding economics, I've seen a number of studies showing that the rate of return on investment in most land-based businesses, but ranching certainly probably toward the low end of this, uh, that, that rate of return is somewhere between 3 and 5%. And Yeah, I'd say that's about right. You know, there's a lot of interest in slow food. Um, you know, maybe this mm-hmm. kind of slow money is good for society as well. And um, yeah, one of the one of the questions I had was what, just to try to wrap us up a little bit, what can sure. ranchers do to stay ahead of uh, regulatory threats? We talked about that a bit with good communication, uh, doing the best that you can to take care of your land and trusting that uh, that'll avoid the knock on the door. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Stay engaged. You know. Um, be active in your local cattlemen's or wool growers association. Be engaged at the state level. Um, you know, we find that um, ranchers that you know, in some of our surveys, ranchers that are proactive, ranchers that seem to do uh, be more um, able to deal with adverse conditions or uncertainty, of which regulations is one. Um, those that have those characteristics, they tend to see a lot of information networks is valuable. They seek information from a lot of places. So I think staying engaged, staying informed, um, understanding what's going on, that doesn't mean go to every meeting there is, you know, but, but also keep abreast of, of conditions, um, have a good network of information, and um, do, a, do a bit of a self-assessment. Do it yourself. You know, take a Take a second look at, at the operation and how you're doing things. Um, if you've got, you know, somebody in cooperative extension or within a technical support agency that you trust, that you see value in, you know, ask them out to, to talk with you about um, what you're doing. I think taking advantage where you're comfortable with um, the resources that are available to make improvements um, on the ranch that have both economic as well as as well as conservation benefits, is is wise and good business. Um, if people are comfortable with accessing those funds, that's a good way to you know, stay engaged. It also establishes a track record of you as an individual, you know, doing things to benefit not only your operation but also the conservation of your resources. Mm-hmm. Looking a bit at, at at our roles as people who work for sort of government agency in the university. Uh, you said before the vegetable growers lay awake at night worrying about birds, not upstream <laughs> cattle. Uh, yeah. To what extent can, can we, with new scientific discoveries, help to um, make environmental regulations smarter and more fair maybe in the world of water quality? Is that happening? Is that too optimistic? Is that something that's so long-term that uh, it's hardly worth thinking about in the here and now. 
No, I think I think we have an important role within the scientific community and the outreach community. And one of the things, you know, as I was trained as a scientist, you know, and to be very conservative, report your results. You know, we as scientists are always taught, you know, taught to caveat our, our you know, a response to a question. Well, it depends. You know, the outcome depends, and we had always depends. And we're taught that well, you need ninety five percent confidence in a result before it's true. You know, and and so we're we're taught to be conservative in how we try to put our science into the policy arena, not to bias one way or the other. We're taught to be super conservative in the way we report our results and advise people to make decisions based upon them. In the real world, policymakers, managers, they have to make decisions now. And they're a lot more comfortable than we realize with uncertainty. They get that. And so I deal with it every day. And so I think we as scientists and educators, we need to be a little less conservative in putting our science out there, making it accessible to policymakers, weighing into, in a constructive way, policy discussions, um, and recognizing that, you know, say I'm going to recommend to a rancher or a group about a set of practices that they could put in place. I know that those practices are going to be somewhere between 30% and 90% effective based on site conditions out there. I can tell them that. And then they can decide whether or not they want to take a risk on the practice being 30% or 90% effective on their site. They can make that decision. I just need to give them kind of those bounds and let them know what they can expect. And so I think for us to be less hesitant in engaging in the policy and regulatory development discussions than I think we have been in the past. And in, in, in being less hesitant, but also continuing to try to stay in the middle and base our input on the science that we have available. I was reminded when you said that of a, a sociologist from Rutgers that we had here for a, oh, a, a conference on actually regulations back about oh, 10 or 15 years ago. And he said that, that we in the scientific community tend to think that we're objective and we try to be conservative about what we say. And we assume that other people will make the same actions that we would based on the information that we have. But he said human behavior doesn't work that way and never has. People know the facts about overeating and obesity and unsafe sex and STDs and smoking and lung cancer, you name it, the list goes on. He said, yeah. we have to persuade people, not just inform people. You've got to take a little bit of that muzzle off and and be a, a little bit more engaged if you want to affect behavior. And of course, you know, all over extension for the, the 15 years that I've been in extension, you know, all we ever hear about is results. You know, we want behavior change, outcomes, long-term outcomes, condition change, and you don't get that by just making information available. We have to persuade people toward what we, you know, in a combination of subjective and objective evaluation, think are the right things to do. That's right. We have to provide some leadership. Right. We have, that's exactly right. And, you know, as uncomfortable as that might be for some of us, you know, that's what we have to do. And, you know, no matter what, people are going to make a decision. If policy policymaker has to make a decision, They've got a week to do it. Sometimes they've got a couple of days to do it. You know, they're going to make a decision whether you talk to them or not. So you might as well talk to them, particularly if they're asking you to. Um, and then they'll weigh that with the 500, 500 other sources of input that they're getting, and they'll make a decision. So I, I think we it behooves us to um, get in the game um, on some of these things that we might have sat back on in the past. Yeah. Uh, the... The Sierra Foothills Research and Education Center has a tremendously useful website. You guys, you guys have done a great job with that, and we're going to link to that in the show notes. We'll also put together some of the uh, maybe most applicable scientific studies that you've published recently and make those available, at least the ones that are uh, that are open access. Is there anything else that you would like to tell natural resource professionals and ranchers, which is our, our main audience on the podcast here. 
Well, I would say as a, as a, you know, as a scientist and extension educator, tell me, tell us what you need. Um, let us know what we can do um, as, you know, what are the research needs that you have? What are the questions you have that you can't resolve, whether they be economic, social, um, ecological, livestock production? You know, let us know so that we can begin to develop programs to address those. A lot of times I'm finding, you know, the questions that I'll get that folks are hung up on. I'm like, oh, wow, we, we know the answer to that. You know, we've known the answer to that for, for a decade or two. And so, you know, reach out to your state universities and the other technical resources and ask them for help when you need it. And if they can't provide the answers that you need, challenge us to go find it. And then participate with us in the process of conducting the science. Um, you know, become engaged at the beginning with identifying the research goals and objectives, making sure that at the end, the answers that we come up with are going to be relevant to the questions that you have. Um, so I would say the most important research that I've conducted in my career has had the end user, whether it be range conservationists, water quality regulators, ranchers, or all of the above, directly involved throughout the entire process. That's been the most rewarding research that, that I've conducted. And so I'd, I'd encourage managers that are listening to this to reach out. Very good. Ken Tate, I appreciate your time today, and uh, I look forward to visiting with you soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Thank you.